Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. As I was uh, saying in the, in the kids' talk, for those of us uh, here, um, sometimes reluctance or hesitancy can be a good thing. Um, you know, should I click on this ad that's popped up on my computer saying that terrible viruses are going to infect my hard drive unless I renew the subscription to this antivirus software that I don't remember signing up before, but it's, you know, really important to sign up now? No, probably not. Yeah, caution is advised. Reluctance is good. Should I jump off this high rock into that water pool below that I haven't been in before, I haven't checked the depth just because my friend is saying it'll be fine. Mm, reluctance seems quite reasonable in a situation like that. But as we know, sometimes it's not really helpful, is it? Sometimes it just robs us of an experience that we, that could have, you know, should have been ours to enjoy. Um, you might be in a new context, um, started a new job, a new course at uni, new social situation, and, and someone invites you to to join with them, with a group of people doing something later, like getting some drinks or going uh, out for a meal. Uh, you feel a little bit shy, a little bit uh, unsure. You, you make up an excuse, say, no, it's okay, thanks, maybe next time. Um, and, and you watch them go off laughing, having fun, you know, the crowd that you could have been a part of. Reluctance can rob us of good things. Now, I've been um, trying to get into surfing over the past couple of months. Um, you know, when the conditions are right, when I have time, when I've got enough motivation, when all those things kind of, you know, coalesce. And anyway, one of the things that's getting in the way of me actually learning to surf and getting any good is my reluctance to actually catch waves um, because they just seem a little bit too big all of a sudden. You know, they, they certainly seem a lot bigger when you're out there than they do up in the car park <laughs> when you're deciding to go out. And now, of course, I could go the other way, couldn't I, and, and not be cautious enough. Uh, I could try to catch waves that are going to dump me badly, that I don't have the, the skill or the experience for. But I know that my problem is I'm usually too quick to pull back, too, too cautious, too quick to assume I, I can't do this. It's going it's to hurt. I'm not going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, to really get any better, to get anywhere, I need to trust that It'll be okay. I can, I can do it, even if I do get dumped a few times. Reluctance can be a curse. When it's, when it's just fear preventing us from doing something that we really should, that we really can do, well, we're undermining good opportunities, situations that could bring joy and fruitfulness into our lives. As we seek to follow Jesus, we can be reluctant to embrace the way of life that Jesus calls us to. Our, our mind can struggle to see past what we might lose in the process, the sacrifices, the discomfort involved. We can be reluctant to be open about our faith, afraid of how uh, other people might react. Uh, we can be reluctant to take up opportunities to serve and to bless others, uh, to share your hope in Christ or to encourage someone, uh, seeing instead just, just the easier and more comfortable path and, you know, shying back. 
shying away, holding back, just doing your thing. And the truth is that we are the ones missing out when we're reluctant to embrace what God calls us to, aren't we? We're letting good things pass us by. In Judges chapter 4 and 5, I think God is inviting us to do two things. Firstly, to rest gratefully in his powerful and decisive victory over sin and over evil. Uh, to celebrate, to rejoice in that victory. But not in a passive way. You see, the second thing I think God is saying uh, in, this, in these passages is to trust in his salvation by joining him. By joining him in the war to follow his lead and play our part with confidence. Uh, to, to, to not hold back not be reluctant to embrace our part in what God is doing. So these chapters highlight that it, that it is God who wages war against evil. It, it's God who guarantees the victory. But they also highlight the importance of joining God in that fight. So in chapter 4, um, which is read out for us, we get the story, the next saga in uh, this catalogue of stories in the book of Judges uh, about sin, oppression, and redemption. And it follows the same pattern that we saw in the two main episodes in chapter 3 last week with Othniel and Ehud. Uh, and it's the same pattern that was really spelled out for us in chapter 2, which gave us an overview of the whole book. Uh, so starting from verse 1, again, we see the first step in the cycle, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, uh, now that Ehud was dead. The, the narrator told us, didn't he, back in chapter 2, that Whenever the judge died, who had rescued them from the consequences of their sin and idolatry, well, the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers, following other gods to serve them and bow down and worship to them. And lo and behold, that's what we see, isn't it? Memories are short, and the natural inclination towards idolatry emerges once again. And so, as God warned he would, he hands them over to their enemies. Verses 2 and 3 spell out the consequences of their sin. God sells them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, and Sisera, his army commander. They have these dreaded iron chariots that seem to render Israel helpless, and in their misery and helplessness, they cry out to the Lord for help. But this is where the story deviates slightly from the pattern, or at least in the way that it is um, told. See, in chapter 3, with Othniel and Ehud, we get the simple statement, the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, and God raised up Othniel, or raised up Ehud, to deliver them. But here in chapter 4, we meet two judges, and they function in different ways. First, we're introduced to Deborah, who is a, a prophet, and already judging, uh, or leading Israel at the time. Now, she's not a military leader like Othniel, uh, or even Ehud, that God raises up to deliver Israel, is more like the prophet Samuel to come, a national figurehead who delivers God's messages and settles disputes amongst the people. Now, just as an aside, um, uh, and I wish I had more time for this, but it's worth appreciating that the role Deborah plays here, what's reported to us, and the way she's portrayed in these chapters, it certainly challenges overly restrictive attitudes towards the roles that women uh, can and should play in church and society, I think. Now, I don't think that um, the example of Deborah overturns or contradicts what the Bible says elsewhere, particularly in 1 Timothy chapter 2, about authoritative teaching roles in the church. But it stands alongside other examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament 
uh, of female prophets and expectations that women will, will serve and speak in all sorts of ways amongst God's church. And so it certainly makes us think twice about uh, being too hasty in applying one passage in a way that effectively excludes uh, women from speaking God's truth to his people and sharing in the task of leading God's people. Now, anyway, that's obviously a topic that uh, needs a lot more discussion and nuance than I can give in a little aside, and feel free to chat to me afterwards if you have questions. So, first we meet Deborah, the woman who's already judging the people of Israel. And then we meet Barak, whom God has called to act as a delivering judge, uh, one like Othniel or Ehud. In fact, God raises up Barak through Deborah. She calls for him from way up north in Naphtali and gives God's message to him. He's to go with 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them in battle against Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, uh, whom God will uh, lead with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River and give them into his hands. And this command with the, the promise of success and then Barak's response to it, well, that draws us into the heart of these chapters, I think. God is the one who will deliver his people, his promising victory, but Barak is not exactly keen. He's reluctant to go, at least on his own. If you go with me, well, I'll go, but if you don't go with me, I will not go. It's not an impressive response, is it? He's not inviting her to, to join him. Okay, I'm, I'm, off I go, do you want to come with me? No, he's saying he's not going to go unless she goes with him. It's, it's really a, a manipulative response, isn't it? And there's a cost to Barak's reluctance and cowardice. Certainly, I will go with you, says Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. He won't go without a woman, and so the honour of victory over the enemy will go to a woman. And at this point, we're thinking, well, who else but Deborah? You know, surely she's the impressive mother of Israel figure who will lead them into victory. She's going with Barak. But no, as we know from the reading, that's not how it plays out. Well, from the rest of verse 9 through to verse 16, events unfold just as expected from God's uh, message through Deborah. Barak summons the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. 10,000 men join him along with Deborah. Sisera hears they have assembled on Mount Tabor. Uh, he summons all his chariots and troops to the Kishon River. Deborah urges Barak to go for it, again declaring that God has gone ahead of him and has handed Sisera into his hands. And it's a rout. Barak and his men slaughter Sisera's army. Not a man is left. The chariots are worthless in the end. Sisera flees on foot from his chariots. Uh, and then that leads us to the twist at the end of the story. Whilst Barak is pursuing the chariots and finishing off the army, Sisera is fleeing on foot in the opposite direction. And his feet take him to the tent of Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite. Now he thinks this is the perfect hiding spot. There's an alliance between Heber and Jabin, king of the Canaanites. And so from his point of view, it's a quiet little hiding spot on safe ground. And Jael, she draws him in like a siren, you know, singing softly, come in, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. She covers him up with a blanket, gives him milk to drink, reassuring him, tucking him up into bed like a child. Sisera is still nervous, urges her to go to the door, send anyone away who's, who's looking, and then falls into a deep, exhausted sleep. And now, 
Jael acts quickly and quietly. She's made her choice. She picks up a tent peg and a hammer, sneaks up quietly, and bam, drives the tent peg through his temple into the ground. That's shocking, isn't it? I don't know if this was the first time you've ever heard this story in the Bible. You don't know at this point whether to cheer or shudder in horror at what is there in God's Word. And it's at that moment that Barak comes by in pursuit of Sisera. The, the commander of the army's got away. You know, he, he can't rest till he finishes him off. So Jael goes out to meet him and invites him in. Come, I will show you the man you're looking for. He goes in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. See, what should have belonged to Barak, the honor of defeating the commander of the Canaanite army, what, what should have been his honor, it's taken away from him and given to a non-Israelite woman. Jael steps up where Barak shied away, and so the honor is hers. And then in verses 23 and 24, at the end of the chapter, we get the summary. That day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and, and they completely overcome him in the end. Now, at this point, we don't get the usual finishing statement about the Israelites experiencing rest from their enemies. Uh, and that comes at the end of chapter 5. First, we get a song sung by both Deborah and Barak retelling the story of chapter 4 in poetic form. And it's the song that focuses our attention even more on the key themes. It helps us understand and read the story. So first and foremost, the song is a celebration of the victory of God over his enemies. It's a song celebrating the redemption of God. It helps us see how the story of Barak, Deborah, and Jael is a story that highlights the gracious and powerful salvation of God against the backdrop of our helplessness and our sinfulness. The verses 2 and 3, they introduce the song as a song of praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. And then, verses 4 and 5, they describe God marching up from the south the great divine warrior, the Lord, the God of Sinai, Mount Sinai, the God who had redeemed his people from Egypt, who'd revealed his law, now marching against enemies in the north. And as he marches, he shakes the earth. He brings water pouring down from the heavens. And this is significant. It's not just a random description of power. It points to what God actually did to hand Sisera's army over to Barak. See, back in chapter 4, uh, we, we heard that God told Barak that he would lure Sisera and his army to the Kishon River, uh, and there he would hand them over to Barak. And then, as events unfold, we're, we're told in verse 14 of chapter 4 that the Lord threw Sisera, his chariots, and his army into a panic before the advance of Barak. How? How did God throw them into a panic? How did he hand them over? We find out in the song. The skies pour rain. The clouds pour rain. And uh, towards the end of the song, verse 21, we hear the outcome. The Kishon River swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. The chariots, which the Canaanites had used to oppress the Israelites for 20 years, well, they were rendered useless as the ground turned to mud and the rushing water knocked the army into chaos. The easy prey for Barak and his army, who themselves are, uh, are sweeping down the mountain like a swollen river. God handed over his enemy to Barak. 
And it's a striking contrast what happens here to the description of Israel's helpless condition in verses 6 and 8 of the song. We read there, In the days of Shemgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travellers took to winding paths. They're too afraid. Villages in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So it's no wonder at the close of chapter 4 that the narrator states, on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan. Israel, well, Israel was wallowing in the consequences of her sin and idolatry helpless, and God stepped in, determined to save. So the story of chapter 4 and the song of chapter 5, they proclaim a truth that we see repeated throughout the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who leads the battle. He is the one in whom victory rests. It was displayed powerfully, wasn't it, in the exodus from Egypt with God's triumph over Pharaoh and his army. And later, when Israel's place in the land is is threatened again by the Philistines and their giant warrior, Goliath, young David, he, he rises up and he proclaims, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David has heard of the stories of God's victories over his enemies. He knew the song of Deborah and Barak. He knew that the battle is the Lord's. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And of course, we see the truth find fulfillment in Jesus, don't we? In his death and resurrection, God has triumphed over the powers of sin and evil. He's done what we couldn't do. Victory rests in him uh, and what he has done for us in Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he explains to us, when you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Be like the Israelites, where we're helpless, we're wallowing in the consequences of our sin, dead in sin. And it is God, God is the one who steps in and intervenes. He leads the charge. He disarms the powers and authorities as he nails our debt of sin to the cross. Judges 4 and 5 reveals the God of the gospel, a God who is determined to fight for his people, not because they deserve it, but because he's faithful to his promises and committed to his plan to overthrow evil and establish his good kingdom. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the fitting response, really, the primary response of God's people is to rejoice in this victory on our behalf, isn't it? Like the saints pictured in in Revelation 19, the very end, uh, vision of the end, after Babylon, the great enemy of God's people is destroyed, the saints are crying out, hallelujah, salvation, glory and power belong to our God. 
They're reveling in the victory of God over sin and evil. And that's what the song of Deborah and Barak does. It is fundamentally a song that revels in the salvation of God, the victory of God over his enemies. And we see this come to a climax in the final section, from verses 24 to 31, with a striking contrast between two women, Jael, who kills Sisera, and then Sisera's mother, waiting for her son. Now, we might be shocked and disturbed when we first read that account of Jael picking up the tent peg and killing Sisera. You know, there's, we've watched too much prime TV if we're not shocked a little bit by what we read there. You know, it's, there's deception, there's brutal violence. It's not exactly the kind of thing that we normally encourage, is it? And yet, the song doesn't gloss over what JL did or try to hide it or minimize it. No, on the contrary, the song revels in the actions of JL. This is the good bit. Most blessed of women be JL the wife of Heber the Canaanite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water, she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Quite a focus, isn't it? There's no hiding it. The song revels in Jael's actions, revels in her execution of Sisera. And then it goes further. It's not enough to recount in slow, repetitive rhythm the crushing death of Sisera. No, Barak and Deborah now turn to imagine Sisera's mother, nervously waiting for her son to return, wondering, wondering, trying to tell herself everything is okay. From verse 28, through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice, she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answers her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera, colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this as plunder? It's powerful, isn't it? It's very clever. It's so powerful, it's disturbing. It feels like it's going way too far, gloating in the suffering of the enemy, describing the tragic, nervous chatter of his mother and her friends, reveling in the idea of, of her finally breaking down when she hears the truth. But this is God's people reveling in the surprising salvation of their God over his enemies. So we need to remember the broader context, don't we? The story of God's kingdom. See, Sisera, he represented the people and the powers opposed to God's good purposes in the land for the sake of the world. He and his king Jabin, they stood in the way of God establishing a people to know him and worship him rightly, to be a holy people amongst sinful nations to represent God to the world around them. These stories of battles in the Bible, they're not just about different nations fighting over land. They're stories about a nation that God has chosen, saved and called to worship him, ultimately to bring justice and blessing to the nation. And so the final line exalts in the destruction of Sisera, not as Israel's enemy, 
but God's enemies. So may all your enemies perish, Lord. God raised up Jael to defeat his enemies, and God's people rejoiced. Now, we might struggle with the brutal realities of, of Old Testament warfare and what's described here. And of course, it, it's hugely significant that now, after Jesus, the, the kingdom is a spiritual reality. We defend the, the borders of God's kingdom by maintaining a faithful witness to Jesus, come what may, not by beating back unbelievers. Certainly don't need tent pegs and hammers. But we should follow the lead of this song in celebrating God's decisive victory over sin and resting in the fact that salvation belongs to him. See, just as Paul, he celebrates, doesn't he, the victory of God over sin and death in his letter to the Corinthians. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the primary application of this chapter is is simply to acknowledge our desperate need for salvation, uh, thanks to our persistently sinful hearts, and to celebrate the decisive victory of our God on our behalf, to rest, even to revel, as we have seen, in his power, in his victory for our sake. But as I said earlier, these chapters, they don't just encourage a passive resting in God's salvation. No, they invite us to join in the fight. An equally dominant theme in the story and the song is the goodness and the honour of embracing that call to join in the battle and the shame, really, of holding back. So as we saw in the story in chapter 4, Barak is chastised for his reluctant response. The honour of victory will be taken away from him and given to a woman, to Jael. And as we've seen, celebrating the victory of God through Jael, it's the climax of the song. This this Kenite, this non-Israelite woman, is held up as the most blessed of women. And now, as much as it points to God's salvation, it also is highlighting her role, isn't it? Celebrating the role that she chose to play. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. At her feet, he sank. At her feet, he sank and he fell. The song celebrates Jael's decision to side with the Lord, the God of Israel, and do what she could to bring down his enemies. Now, she's a complicated role model, no doubt, but she's a role model nevertheless, isn't she? And whilst the song doesn't explicitly condemn Barak or dwell on his hesitancy, it does indirectly do this by celebrating those who willingly joined in and condemning those who held back. See, the very opening line of the song, it highlights the goodness of God's people giving themselves to the fight. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. And then in the middle of the song, after the description of God marching out as a divine warrior and Israel as the helpless victim, well, the focus shifts to recount the Lord's people going down, convinced that God has promised victory. It celebrates this. Verse 13, tells of the people of the Lord coming down against the mighty. And then in verses 14 and 15, uh, they list those who came down, some from Ephraim, Benjamin, captains from the region of Machir, commanders from Zebulun, the princes of Issachar were there with Deborah. They went under the command of Barak into battle. 
It's a coalition of the willing. They're, they're celebrated for joining in and playing their part. But not all joined in. They go on. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flock? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Where were you when it counted? Why did you hold back, O tribes of Israel? In contrast, they go on, the people of Zebulon risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought. So the song it then gives way to describe the dramatic victory of God. The, the kings of Canaan, they took no plunder this time. The heavens fought against them. The rivers swept them away. The horses go galloping away. And, and the point is that some tribes joined the battle and some did not. Some risked their lives embracing God's call and some did not. And so between the description of God's victory over the enemy and the praise of Jael's actions right at the end, well, verse 23 slips in this harsh word, curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. Our commentators say Meroz would have been a town probably situated in Naphtali, near the site of the battle. They would have been expected to join in, but they did not. They chose to watch from the sidelines, see how things would play out. That's not what it means to rest in God's salvation. That's cowardly lack of faith. That's not what it means to trust in God's victory. God calls for an active trust. We join in, trusting the battle is his, not ours, not the enemy's, but joining in nevertheless. And that's why the New Testament is just filled with exhortations to wage war against sin in our lives, to exert so much energy, standing firm, working for the cause of the gospel. See, as much as we're called to, to trust, to simply trust in God's salvation, to rest in Him, we're called to express that faith by joining in the fight. So after Paul celebrates God's decisive victory over sin in Colossians chapter 2, well, in the next chapter... He exhorts his readers, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. And he goes on to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Celebrate God's victory. Show your, your trust in it by joining in the fight. Put sin to death. Clothe yourselves with, with Christ. In every single letter of the New Testament, we, we will find verses that urge us to actively join in the work that God is doing in our lives and in the world around us. So after his great celebration of God's victory over sin and death in 1 Corinthians 15, do you know how Paul finishes the chapter? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, resting in, reveling in the victory of God on our behalf, that gives us the confidence 
the motivation, the very reason to give ourselves to his great work uh, for our sake and for the sake of a world that needs to know God's grace in Jesus. Now, I don't know where you might be letting reluctance get in the way of embracing what God is doing. Uh, Perhaps you're not even aware of it. It's worth reflecting, isn't it? Uh, It might be a reluctance to repent of certain ways of relating to other people, certain attitudes, reactions. A reluctance to let God redefine your priorities and your values, the way you budget and plan your week, your month, your year. A reluctance to step into certain roles, uh, to learn ways of serving, might be out of fear or might be out of apathy, just plain old self-centeredness. Reluctance can get in the way. It, it, it might be reluctance to simply give yourself over to Christ at all in the first place. I want to encourage you, don't let reluctance rob you of the joy of embracing God's salvation. All the ways that you can embrace that work in your life here and now and all the ways that God invites you to join him in bringing that salvation to others. You see, ultimately the battle, it doesn't depend on you or me, does it? God is committed to a certain outcome either way, that salvation belongs to the Lord. But there is a cost to us personally when we are reluctant to embrace our part. And you don't want to choose that path. Revel in the victory of God by stepping up and joining him in the fight. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the, uh, the vivid reminder in, this, in these passages, these chapters, that victory belongs to you, salvation belongs to you. Help us to trust in that, to celebrate it, to revel in that, to let that truth shape us, shape our hearts and minds. Thank you.